You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Gina. Thank you. That was an excellent uh, summary of what's going on in women's ministry. I was tracking with you fully until you said you might have a dentist appointment. And I didn't hear anything after that. I was thinking about that. And I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I, I heard it all. Thank you very much. And we usually will have a, just a period of music after the prayer time for the children to be dismissed. But they are not being dismissed today. August is our family worship month. So... Welcome to the children who are here. And I'm going to say, you're not going to understand anything that I... I'm kidding. You will understand some of it. Let me encourage you, no matter what age you are, if you hear a word or you hear a passage that you're not familiar with, write it down. Look it up later on. Just check it out. Be studying all week long from the things that you hear on Sunday morning. And particularly for the children, I I do want to say this. Toward the end of the message... I'm going to be uh, sharing several different texts from the New Testament. Write them all down, and sometime this week, make your parents read these together as a family. This would be these would be great texts for you to read it down. And I would love for you, if you are especially fifth grade and down, to come up to me after the service and say, "Here are all the texts that you." shared this morning. These are the different passages that you shared so that I can know that we're connecting on a deep level. That would be really wonderful if you would do that. Well, here's a question for all of us at all ages. What level of difference does Jesus make in your life? Would you say it's a minor difference, a significant difference, or a radical difference? Are there activities in which you would like to participate from which you abstain because you know better? You know, Christians, if I'm following Jesus, I just can't do this anymore or I can't do this no matter how right it seems to other people. Or are there attitudes you would like to embrace that you resist because you know you just can't go there as a believer? Or Are there words that you would like to say that you choose not to say because you follow Jesus and you understand that you're called to a different standard than those who don't follow the Lord? Almost every sermon from 1 Corinthians could contain somewhere in its title, wait, wait, you belong to Jesus and you do that? Look, I'll never see, we'll never see it, but it could almost be the title of a commentary on 1 Corinthians. Over and over, he's saying, you're you're Christians, but, but you're living like this? This is a deep contradiction. Uh, as I've studied 1 Corinthians, I've, I've noticed that 2 Corinthians revisits many of the themes that are found in the first. Well, the letter that we know is 1 Corinthians, uh, but, but, but with a gentler and a more positive tone. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is familiar to you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
the oldest passed away. Behold, the new is come. What an affirming statement. What an encouraging word to us. So why the different spirit in 1 Corinthians? In today's text, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8, the apostle Paul will chide the Corinthians in, in saying, I say this to your shame. You are not acting like Jesus has made any difference in your life at all. Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians 5 that his responsibility was not to shame unbelievers, but he also said believers are to hold other believers accountable to a higher standard than the world is expected to meet. Even so, Paul didn't write like this to other churches, except to the churches in Galatia where the problem was theological more than it was behavioral. Now, we know that many, if not most, probably most of the Corinthians were Christians. How do we know that? Paul spent eight whole verses of this long letter in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 8, saying, you're sanctified. You belong to Jesus. You will be (coughs) presented guiltless before the Lord. Just stop right there. I say it over and over. It's not that our church is struggling with a lot of the things, at least not openly, as far as I know, not openly, with the things that the Corinthians were struggling with. But the New Testament church as a whole is. This letter to Corinth really summarizes A lot of what's going on in the New Testament church worldwide, but especially here in America. But just think about how amazing the gospel is. The closer you are to the Lord, the more aware you are of your sins, your weaknesses, your shortcomings. And how you don't measure up and how Jesus just hasn't made the difference in my life that I should have allowed him to make. Can you fathom How amazing the gospel is. How God's grace towards his children who believe in Jesus is not only abundant, it's overflowing and it never runs out. After those first eight verses in chapter 1, Paul peppered the rest of the letter with phrases like, how dare you? You ought to be ashamed. What is wrong with you? Do you not know, brothers? The title of today's message is, what a difference you should have made in my life. Now, if you're old enough, and most of you are not, and some of you are too old, you had to hit the sweet spot. You remember Ronnie Millsap in 1977 sang a song that became a number one hit for him. What a difference you made in my life. And he goes on. Now, the problem was we didn't know if Ronnie was singing about Jesus or his girlfriend. We just didn't know. And and it turns out he was singing about both. And I'm a fan of Ronnie Millsap who spent most of his growing up years in the North Carolina School for the Deaf and Blind. He's blind. Turns out he was singing about both. But here's the thing. If you go sing about Jesus, use his name. Come on. Right? 
But I keep thinking these thoughts every week in Corinthians. What a difference you should have made in my life. But it's not really showing up. To live as the Corinthians lived was such a breathtaking contradiction to the gospel that the behavior needed to be addressed in the strongest terms. And it was, but the purpose of Paul's rebuke was to get their hearts, to to, to fill their hearts with the message of the cross of Christ. Christ and him crucified, our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. The issue of the heart that we will address today, or better, the issue that the Holy Spirit will address with us, is from 1 Corinthians 6, believers taking other believers to court. Now, now we have a treat today. We are, we are blessed that the chairman of our elders served for many long years, first as a trial lawyer and then many years, in fact, many, many, many years as uh, a law school professor. Jim McLaughlin was the dean of the academic affairs at Campbell Law for 10 years, and he served two years as the dean of the law school. Jim's heart for the Lord and for people mixes well with his experience in law. So, Jim, if you would come read the text for us and then uh, share your heart about this text with us. Hadn't been that long. (laughs) Please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes into law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves, wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Brad asked me to talk a few minutes about uh, suing one another. And, I, and I, I keep going back to verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Well, the elders have briefly talked about the possibility of making available here at Grace a Christian dispute resolution ministry. Now, this is easier said than done. Uh, Some problems cannot be resolved unless you do go to court because the law requires you to go before the civil authorities. But we are hoping to get some training and 
perhaps even certification uh, to conduct a Christian conciliation ministry here. Uh, that takes time. It's going to take some money, but we're looking into it. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I did practice. I really was a lawyer one time, and I uh, practiced law. And I remember one day a fairly wealthy, in fact, a very wealthy, and these are the clients you like to see come through the door, <laughs> the, one, the ones that can pay, uh, came into the office, and he was clearly upset. And he came back, and we sat down, and I said, well, what's going on? What's your problem? Well, his next-door neighbor had constructed a brick wall, called it a fence, on the, uh, supposedly on the property line, but he had encroached by 12 to 18 inches on uh, this man's property. And he was madder than a hornet. Now, this is, you know... Most of you in the audience today think you live in the South, but I grew up in the South, Georgia. That's the South. In fact, the first time we ever went back to visit Georgia after moving up here, our boys were out playing with uh, some friends of ours boys, and one of the friends' boys said, where y'all live? He said, North Carolina. I said, North Carolina. Is that where the Yankees are? And, of course, the answer is, well, yeah, some of them are. <laughs> so, but in Albany, Georgia, no, I don't have that, don't have that issue. Uh, so property issues are a big deal, especially in the South. So this 12 to 18, now, the lots were five acres each. We're talking about a big lot, five acres. And the guys encroached a foot or a foot and a half for about, about a 200-foot strip. And this guy is upset. And I asked the question, aren't you and your wife good friends with your neighbors? I, I knew they were. I knew both of them. And he said, well, we used to be until he built that. And since the children are here, I'll just say that fence. And uh, I was a brand new Christian at the time. And I thought to myself, surely these folks can resolve this. And, and, and keep this friendship alive. Isn't the friendship more important than the, than the foot of property? You would think. Well, after some prodding, I got him to agree to meet with the other couple. Bring them down to the, everybody come down to the office, and we'll talk about this. I was going to be the peacemaker. <laughs> little, little tense. Well, both couples come. And, of course, we're in Georgia, so what do we serve? Cookies and Coca-Cola. Not Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola. And we got to talking. And about 15 minutes into it, it was resolved. The men were shaking hands. The women were crying and hugging each other. And the friendship was saved. And the legal problem was solved quite gracefully. And they were apologizing to each other. And they were all, it was a surveyor's era. It wasn't done on, on, on purpose. And the encroaching party agreed to pay for the one foot of property. And we, we drew a deed up and we paid the money. So it was easily solved. And they didn't have to go to court. You know, Scripture speaks loudly about disputes among believers. 
James 4, 1 and 2 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, there are various responses we have when, when conflict occurs. And time does not permit as much discussion as I would like to have. But, but go to online. There's a website called RW360. RW360. It's a Christian conciliation organization located in Billings, Montana, of all places. And it's a good source of how to be a biblical peacemaker. And as you go to that source, you see peacemaking can be done by the parties themselves or with the guidance of other believers. Examples of personal peacemaking would be simply overlooking the offense. Simply overlook it. Let it go. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is to his glory to overlook an offense. And then look at our passage today, chapter, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Isn't the relationship more important? Pretty strong. Second way we can solve disputes personally is reconciliation. Matthew 5, 22. Three and 24, if your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled. Go and work it out. And the third way is negotiation. Philippians 2, 4 says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then there are examples of assisted peacemaking. This is where we would try to step in. And obviously the elders over the years have stepped in a few times, but we're not trained. Uh, and sometimes we've done a good job, sometimes not so good. But mediation, which is what Matthew 18, 16 is all about. Arbitration, which is what 1 Corinthians 6, 4 is about. Look, 6, 4 in our scripture today. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Isn't the clear implication? Bring it before somebody with some wisdom in the church. Let them help you solve this problem. Let them be the decision makers. The, the arbitration. And of course, accountability. Matthew 18, 12, and 17 talks about accountability to one another. I wish I had more time, but we have a real preacher here today, and I'm going to turn it over to him. But please be in prayer as we explore the possibility of a more formal conciliation, Christian conciliation, certain ministry here at Grace Community Church. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. That was pretty good preaching <laughs> right there. And there's a lot of overlap in the way Jim was thinking and the way I was thinking. And we were writing independently. And a lot of things come together. Uh, and Jim has given us a good understanding already of the, of the details of the text. And I'm not going to go through verse by verse as I would often do because it Pretty much self-explanatory. But I want to think about uh, three principles from this text that will help move us toward a better grasp of biblically directed and spirit-empowered 
way of living, beginning with church life does not deny this world's order, but the Holy Spirit calls believers to a higher standard of understanding, loving, and living. Now, Jim said it clearly. There are some things that established law must be involved in with even for believers. We have to handle some things according to established law. There are many things, though, that can be handled outside of court, especially when two believers have a dispute. It's not that unbelievers are incapable of handling this dispute, but their perspective is limited. They're not going to say all the things that Jim said from other scriptures this morning. They're not going to be thinking in this bigger picture. Um, This is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 2. We have been given a level of discernment that unbelievers don't have. It's not that we're better or that we're arrogant than them, more arrogant uh, than others who say, well, I can handle that. I can solve this problem for you. A lot of times people in the world have sadly more wisdom than believers. If we get caught up in the self-righteous game, I'm right and you're wrong and I've got scripture to prove it, then we get in a bad place. But unbelievers just don't have the same level of spiritual discernment that believers have. And we become a spectacle before the world's watching eyes when we get caught up in temporal matters and we do so in worldly venues. Another principle we discern from this text is a failure to understand eternity will hinder our ability to see beyond this world, which in turn can make us slaves to its systems. There's so much in this principle that we could talk about from our day and our culture. And there's a whole lot I want to say, but I'm going to spend some time in just a few minutes looking at different passages of Scripture that ought to inform our thinking when it comes to these types of... Of matters, but look, if all we look at is this world and we don't see our lives and God's glory and the lives of all those around us in a greater context of eternity, then it's no wonder that we start trying to solve things in worldly ways. Paul said in verse 7, you're going to hear this several times. Now, think about it. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. The behavior that Paul condemned in one chapter after another is what Anthony Thistleton refers to as a grasping behavior or covetousness. It's wanting something that is beyond your grasp. It's kind of trying to get everything that you can because if you think this life is all there is, then you've got to. It's got to count. You've got to make it yours. And sometimes it's not even the things that don't, that, that don't righteously belong to you, but things that would be okay to pursue. But if that's all you do, if that's all you're pursuing, then you're missing the eternal perspective in life. And then you start, get the, you start to thinking, well, somebody's done me wrong and this needs to be made right. You know, if you'd asked me before preaching through 1 Corinthians, what's the closest book to the New Testament 
it, it, uh, besides 2 Corinthians, I, I would have said, I don't know that there is another book that's quite like 1 Corinthians. And that's true. There isn't another book quite like this book. But if I had to answer uh, now, I would say, you know, it reminds me very much of the book of James. A common problem in the world in the first century was rich people using the court system to defraud poor people. Rich people used the courts to take advantage of poor people. Now, like so many of the things we talk about here on Sunday morning, and why people think Scripture is not relevant is because we don't have that problem today, right? Rich never try to take care of, I mean, take advantage of the poor. Well, of course we do. Of course, that is a problem in the world and sometimes in the church. When it's found in the first century church, when it was found there, the apostles were apt to say something like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 6.1. How dare you do this? What is wrong with you? Or in James 5, 1-2, come now, you rich. He's talking to, not only to believers, he's talking to church people. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Now, there's a lot more in in James chapter 5. It's even stronger, but you get the idea. So working through 1 Corinthians has really helped me to better understand the book of James, which can feel a lot more like Proverbs than Romans, can it? You're reading the book of James. It's, it's not surprising that the Apostle Paul said it's a strawy little epistle. I can't get my head around it because we know the New Testament teaches justification by faith. And James says, well, your works will point to your will be evidence of your faith. But it's a whole lot like 1 Corinthians where he's addressing a lot of behaviors and dealing with them that, don't, that are not consistent with the faith that they claim to have. The key to 1 Corinthians and to James and to the entire New Testament is found in this last principles. principle. Godly actions cannot be sustained Apart from gospel attitudes. This is why Paul spends so much time in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians laying the foundation of the cross of Christ. Let's face it, we're all legalist at heart. We have our standards and we determine whether we're okay with God by checking off the list that we have created... Oh, I really need to work on this area over here. But this one, it's really not so bad. Oh, but I see somebody else that has that problem. And man, they better make sure they're right with God. Now, my problem, I've adjusted it. This is exactly what the Pharisees did. They, 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 they expanded the law and they tightened the law to suit their own purposes. And so if I can, my list is going to be a lot different from Scott Shambley's list. And we're going to be back and forth judging and comparing one another to see whether or not the, the other brother is really a Christian. Now, look, Paul deals with this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Perhaps 
taking another believer to court, especially when seeking to improve your financial standing at the expense of your brother or sister. Perhaps this action is so extreme that it brings into question whether a person is saved or not. Except that 1 Corinthians 1 has already addressed the issue of salvation. Paul was writing to believers, and he makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 6. What are you doing going before unbelievers? Don't you know we are going to judge angels? But the fact that these were believers sinning in this way means that we're all capable of the most grievous offenses. Look, verses 9 to 11 really go with this text, but the nature of uh, the behavior that is addressed there I thought was not best for family uh, worship month. We'll, we'll pick that back up probably in late September. We're skipping ahead to 1 Corinthians 8 next week. Then we'll come back uh, when all the students are here. Now we have graduate students here already. Um, a lot of undergrad students are starting to trickle back in. But when more students are here, because <laughs> these are areas that we all struggle with at all ages, but particularly uh, young men and women struggle with some of these things. But, but the point is, we're all capable of any sin. And a lot of the New Testament, whenever you find a list in the New Testament, he says, no, you were some of these, but these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And my sense is often that Paul is saying something like, you're a Christian. What in the world? What do you do? You used to be this way, but you're not this way anymore. Jesus ought to make a difference in your life. One more time, verses 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you, wrong, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Is your faith that strong that you would allow someone else, even a Christian brother, to defraud you so that no harm is, is done to the testimony of Christ? What difference has Jesus made in your life? I'm right out here listening. My feet are pretty much mush after this week. What difference has Jesus made in your life? A minor difference, a significant difference, or a radical difference. Here is our challenge to allow gospel attitudes to so permeate our minds and hearts that they produce godly behavior in our lives. Give generously, love well, trust fully. Were not all three of these challenges met by Jesus on the cross? He's given his blood for us. He loved the man being crucified beside him. He loved his mother. He loved the Apostle John. He loved us all. 
And he trusted fully. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. This makes no sense to me as a human. The 100% of me that's human. And there's the other 100% that's divine. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Giving generously protects us from a spirit of greed. Or as, as Thistleton says, a grasping spirit. That shows up in all kinds of behaviors. Loving well can only be done through the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And from love flows joy, peace, patience, etc. Trusting fully not only allows us to receive ill as well as good from the hand of the Lord. But it puts us in a mindset to receive the teachings of the kingdom. Which are utterly upside down from this world's teaching. You cannot, it's not going to work. None of us can live as this world says we ought to live and walk with the Lord in the ways that point to Jesus. If we cannot approach scripture and life with an eternal perspective, we are bound to live as the rest of the world lives. And the most amusing among us are, they, are, are those who say, well, I'm, I'm just not like everybody else. Before we come to the Lord's table, I, I want to read several passages to show the difference that Jesus ought to make in our lives when we follow the Father's plan in the power of the Spirit to give generously, love well, and trust fully. First, let's begin with the Beatitudes taught by Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over sin, over individual sin and national sin, Community sin. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Is that how you're being encouraged to live as believers? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. That's a good reason not to take somebody to court, right? Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Jim, I don't know that maybe just a few weeks prior to that incident, before you were a believer, if you would have been the peacemaker there. Might would have said, this is pretty good. Opportunity, you know, to my children's education. But when you know Jesus, this is our first calling. Be a peacemaker. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. 
on my account. Rejoice, because that's the natural thing, right? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, do these indicate a minor change in our attitudes, a significant change, or a radical change? Galatians 5, 13 through 18. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing Things you want to do. See, this is our struggle as believers, is it not? We've got the spirit in us and we've also got the old man in us and the spirit in the flesh. Their goals, their, their desires, their pursuits, they're all different. And there's this lifelong struggle as long as we're believers going on. And we're, when we're walking in the flesh... We're like, oh, oh, that's not what I want to do. I want to be walking in the Spirit. And when we're walking in the Spirit, we're walking in the Spirit. And we, hey, it looks attractive one way or the other. And, and, and if we allow ourselves to walk in the flesh as a body, we've got big troubles. As a body, but if you are led by the Spirit, this is an interesting phrase, is it not? You're not under the law. So it's not just about behavior, it's about belief, it's about attitude, it's about submission. Then Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3 and 29 to 32. I, Paul, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Is this not the cry of Paul's heart all through 1 Corinthians? Walk according to the manner to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. In the bond of peace. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth with one another. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. (coughs) Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I love to hear my little children. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And what a good word. And then finally, in preparation for our time at the Lord's table, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Overlap. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, by the way, ambition, you go back a little more than 100 years, you'll never see selfish combined with it in um, old translations of Scripture, but we've added it to distinguish between good ambition and, and bad ambition. They didn't see it that way in the past. It's not that doing your best and pursuing um, things that the Lord has put before you were considered bad. But when we are ambitious, we'll oftentimes do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do if we're not careful with that. What is the... What, what is the cure? Do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. <clears throat> Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of not God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isn't it interesting that, that he uses that word? Jesus did not consider his divine privilege is a thing to be grasped or hung on to. But his example is the very opposite. He laid aside some of his divine privileges without laying aside his divinity. And becoming, remaining who he was, he became what he was not. He became one of us. He became human. And we'll always know Jesus from now on as the Jesus who walked the earth. But he's also God. 100% man, 100% God. But if, if the God of the universe, the Son of God, eternally equal and um, existent, coexistent with the Lord, lays aside his privileges and comes to earth as one of us, surely we understand why we ought not to get in disputes with brothers and sisters that spill over into the world and deny everything that we say we believe.
So as we prepare our hearts for the table, I'm going to ask our worship team and elders and deacons to come forward to serve if they would. And I'm going to give a few instructions as they're coming forward. First, a piece of information. That is that our bread that we're serving today is gluten-free. So if you have those allergies, you do not have to be concerned about that. Second, we are going to be serving from the front today. Each section will have a pair of elders, deacon staff in front, and you will come receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and hold on to them. We're going to partake all at the same time. We're going to come up in these interior aisles and then go back up the middle and the outer aisles. There will be elders who will help guide you uh, or ushers that will help guide you along the, the, the way. If you're unable to come forward to receive the elements, someone from the back will serve you. This meal is intended for believers. If you are a believer, whether you're a member of grace or not, we invite you to partake with us. And if not, what better time to profess your faith in Christ than at this moment saying, I believe. I believe that Jesus died for me. As much as the Apostle Paul was addressing this ill behavior of the Corinthians. I'm going to bring this with me just in case. As much as he was addressing the ill behavior of the Corinthians, uh, he made it very clear throughout the book that our only hope of heaven is our faith in Christ. In fact... If this is all about law, these guys ain't in. They're not making it at all. But it's about their relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been a religious person or you've thought of yourself religious at times. Not about religion. It's about a relationship. And that relationship can only come if the Lord does something for us. We can't do anything good enough. But when Jesus died on the cross... He gave his body. He spilled his blood as a perfect sacrifice that we might be saved. Our text, which we'll often come to in this study, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And when we get there, we're going to see this rich, poor thing going on again. Uh, in beginning in verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and said. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The greater context of this particular text is that people were making distinctions among themselves that the Lord had really broken down in Jesus' death. And so they were sinning against one another. And Paul was quite harsh. He said, examine yourselves before you come to this table. 
don't think any of this going on here that I surely that I know of, but the Lord knows your heart. You know where you are. But regardless, the principle is right. That we examine our hearts, that we confess any sins in our lives, that even if it's a sin that you've struggled with for a long, long time, and you keep struggling with it, confess it to the Lord. What we're doing today reminds us that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And his forgiveness is, is, is readily available to those who believe and those who trust. So I'm going to give you just a moment privately to confess your sins to the Lord in your heart. And then I will pray for us and we will partake. Father, in these few brief moments, I know that you hear from us a confession that you've known about all along where we say, I just can't believe how badly I missed the mark. Jesus, who always hit the mark, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And we thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for your plan, Father. We thank you, Spirit, for letting us know that Jesus died for us. Jesus, be exalted in our midst today, even as we partake at this table. We love you and thank you. It's in the name of the Son that we pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.